Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. This is the nation's oldest public affairs discussion forum. I'm Dr. Ann W. Smith, the club's arts forum co-chair and your program moderator for this evening. We're pleased to welcome any new club members who are here today and tuned in online. We welcome all of you in person and online um, as often as possible. And we're so excited to be with you in the Tony Remby Rock Room. Is Zoom is it's, it's in person for the first time in three years. And uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bravo! Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey. Go, Debbie! <laughs> um, <clears throat> Zoom is fine in, in, in so many ways, but in person is just wonderful. And um, we're also streaming for those who want to tune in, so it's a live stream. And uh, three years ago, that would have been a very cumbersome process. But now it's, you know, audio here, video, there's cameras behind, uh, behind you that we can look at, and, and they're part of the program, too. Um, let, let, uh, this couldn't be done without the work of Mark Kirshner and our Commonwealth Club tech team, who make everything possible. And they're doing an average of <clears throat> five or six programs a week for about 48 weeks a year. That's a lot of programming, and I'm ever so grateful. And the Arts Forum is ever so grateful. And so please let your friends and uh, supporters know that they will be able to listen and watch this program on our website in a few days as well. So pass the word on. Just go to the Commonwealth Club website. I'm uh, extremely pleased and honored at today's meeting to welcome an old colleague. Well, not it's so old. old. It's old. It's, it's pretty old. old. Yeah, pretty it's old. old. <laughs> um, into our Commonwealth Club conversation for tonight's meeting, uh, Debbie Chin is executive director of Silicon Valley's Theater Works, a superb theater company led by artistic director uh, Tim Bond, who uh, we were happy to have with us in 2021 for a theater panel. <clears throat> and, and Debbie's primary professional and volunteer career focuses on theater work, work that heals our society and bridges our cultural differences. That was seated across a 13-generation saga, Crossing Continents. And over the past 25 years, she herself, having landed in the Bay Area first, has held a series of executive suite positions um, as executive director of California Shakespeare Festival, um, of uh, Opera Parallel, uh, the Opera, the uh, Carmel Bach Festival. She went to East to be head of Baltimore Center Stage, uh, the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey, New Jersey, and <laughs> <laughs> and most recently of Anna Devere Smith's projects. So uh, Debbie's really cut across quite a, a wide executive swath in the arts. She's also served on the boards of the San Francisco Community Music Center and the Playwrights Foundation, the Chinese Cultural Center of San Francisco, and more recently as board president of Theater Bay Area, where I followed her, where I'm now the president. So thank you for passing the baton on. No worries. Most of the time. <laughs> <clears throat> Today's tonight's meeting is about dancing in their light, a daughter's unfinished memoir, and it's a biographical conversation 
that in this program we'll be conversing, exploring the research that brought forth Debbie's family's experiences, moving, leaving China, and assimilating in the United States. It's a specifically Chinese-American immigration story. It's a compilation skillfully weaving together stories of the Chin family restaurant, the house of Mahjong, and the distinct personality of a golden age Polynesian floor show in a restaurant on Long Island. Uh, we'll, we'll have some time for a few audience questions near the end. Um, and if you uh, have a question, uh, feel free to uh, write it on the paper and bring it around to me, and I will manage the questions. Um, I, wanna, I want to relate our discussion of the book to uh, the public affairs kind of distinction of the Commonwealth Club. But first, you know, we all, we all try memoir one, right? We even get to memoir 101, and this is actually doing the book, memoir 600 or whatever. <laughs> and I want to ask Debbie to summarize the various kinds of things that she did in order to, to get this wonderful book off the presses. I remember when she was getting started on it. So, Yeah, it's, a, it's about a 10-year project, uh, and I never really intended to write a book. I was just going to uh, document things for my younger cousins who really didn't know very much about our family history. And one of my cousins uh, passed away uh, rather early at the age of 45. She was our historian. And when she passed away, all of the history of our family just started to sit in boxes and uh, and so I thought, well, I, I, have no, I have no worldly goods to give anybody except probably a memory. Uh, and so that's my inheritance to them. And so I just began to put stories on Facebook about um, our restaurant and growing up in Long Island, what it was like to be a hula dancer. And my, my first job, as I say, was selling cigarettes at the age of three. It's, it's a true story. <laughs> um, and there were no vending machines. My, uh, my mother had a carton of cigar, uh, box of, uh, of, uh, of cartons of cigarettes that I had to take out, and I had to put them in the, a counter, and I would arrange them by color. And, uh, and I stood on tiptoe to hand them to the customer on the other side, and cigarettes were 45 cents a pack in those days. And so they gave me a dollar, and I learned how to count change back. So that was my, 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 my math class g- growing up. <laughs> um, but the, uh, so, the, so when I was telling these stories of what it was like to be in a restaurant and a Polynesian nightclub, which you don't see anymore, by the way, uh, people remembered what the food tasted like. They remembered what the spareribs looked like. They were, they were reciting back to me every single memory that they, that they had. One girl told me that I still have the coin purse your father gave me for my 16th birthday, and he put a coin in it and gave it to me for good luck, and I'd given it to my grandchildren. So these stories were popping up, and I thought, well, what was it about our restaurant that was so, so unique? Mm-hmm. And uh, my father wrote a very modest eight-page, not even memoir. He, was just, he just wrote it on a typewriter, and it was, it was so so thin, and, and I thought I want to dive in and find out more about what was behind that. But the, the crux of the story was capturing oral history from my, my mother's younger sister. And after my mother died, I, I, I really missed her voice. Mm-hmm. And I didn't keep any recordings of her. There's nothing that exists. And my aunt sounds exactly like my mother. And so I would go and visit with my aunt, and I would just t- take a recorder and have her just talk. And it was just wonderful to hear stories that I was told as a young girl, but I never really was interested in or remembered. Um, and so I began to put that together with the restaurant story. But mm-hmm. So that was about eight years of talking to my aunt and getting things, bits and pieces, and there was no arc to it. Um, but what really propelled me to write this and to get to be serious about this was when we started to hear and see the rise of anti-Asian hate in this country in 2017. <laughs> and, uh, and we heard the Chinese flu and the Kung flu virus, and I was uh, assaulted on, uh, right in Civic Center near Upper Parallel's office. Uh, I was told to go back to where I came from. I was living in Pebble Beach uh, just as the 2016 election was clear who won. And uh, Pebble Beach is a, is a rel- relatively safe area, and I was in the supermarket and some person told me that your people are going to be out of this country soon. So there was no place to be safe. And I started to um, see these 
these news reports of mm-hmm. Asians being beat, spat upon. I mean, I was spat upon in front of my office at Upper Parallel. Uh, and I and I couldn't believe why are we the enemy? We and I began to think that there's got to be a sense of urgency about talking about the value of every immigrant in this country. And I I was uh, I had two choices. One is I could hibernate and during the, the pandemic and live in fear because I did change how I went out. I didn't go out to go shopping uh, during lunch hour. I got out and did all my errands very early in the morning, and I would stay in at 9 o'clock in the morning. I wouldn't go out because I didn't want to be attacked anymore. So I began to carry mace, and I thought, what is, what is that? What is? So I just began to think about writing about my family's contributions to this country in every single industry that was nascent in the days when they just mm-hmm. came here as young women. When my mm-hmm. mother's siblings came here, they were 17 years old and 20 years old, and they began to forge a pathway for this country in many ways. Um, so it was eight-year journey, but really it's sped up for the last two years. Yes. And then it had to be done. It had that to, had to be done. Then it had to go to the yeah. publisher. It had to be done. <clears throat> Great. And I think that comes across really well. Um, but let's, let's then, we can, let's go back then to what, what really started. Um, this, the whole early section of the book <clears throat> had, 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 there, had we but world enough in time, as they say, and had you but uh, materials and information, probably could have been longer. But it moves quite quickly, but it's of immense value. And so I'd, I'd love you to um, describe the situation in China's regional um, geography that le- and po- politics that sort of was the backdrop that led to your family's decision to leave. So it all began with the missionaries. So uh, the missionaries are, were very important to my, to my family, the Protestant missionaries in particular. And, uh, and I, I talk about in, in the book that there is a man named uh, Jesse Borpin Hartwell Jr. That's there Jesse Borpin Hartwell. He was a Protestant missionary. He was from South Carolina. And he found a calling to go to China. He had always felt the calling to be in China. And he eventually uh, moved to China, and he established the first Protestant uh, missionary there. His wife started the first Protestant church. And this was a man who was um, there in China during the Taiping Rebellion. The Taiping Rebellion was a civil war in China. It started in 1850, and it lasted well over a decade. And over 20 million people died in the Taiping Rebellion, 30 million were displaced. And it was against this backdrop that uh, a young girl and her mother were escaping the rebellion, and they took refuge in a church. And it was this man's church. And he heard a a cry from the young child, and the mother was dead, but the young child was lying next to her dead mother. And he rescued that little girl, and he adopted her, and he raised her, he named her Mary Hartwell. And Mary Hartwell is my great-grandmother. And so uh, because Jesse Hartwell uh, was from the United States, my great-grandmother was raised Western. She learned the Western language, and so she, they, they, she traveled to, the, to South Carolina, and uh, so she was steeped in Western influence. She was bilingual? She was bilingual. And she was, um, she was, she was one of those... Uh, people that Jesse Boardman Hartwell valued girls. Uh, and he was, a, he was a, the man who actually saved my family. And my great-grandmother is the one that's seated uh, second to the right holding a little baby. And next to her, her right is that big man is her husband. But behind them are their three boys, their three sons. And the boy in the middle is my grandfather, Frank. And so I look at this picture and I think this is one of the rare pictures that actually came out of China. And in my book, I talk about uh, during the, the, the series of wars, uh, my, my, all of my family fled China uh, right away. They, they, they didn't have the, the luxury of just packing and someday we'll go to the United States. They had to get out of there. So very few photos in my family exist of that time because they were burned and they were, uh, they were just lost. And so I really treasure this one. Yeah. Um, and this picture is of my mother, and her. Uh, that's, so Frank is my grandfather, uh, with his wife, and then that's all their kids. And my mother is the one uh, on your left uh, standing. 
And this is one of the rare photos of all of them as a family intact, because just a couple of years later, they, uh, a series of war, China was always tortured by war, uh, another series of war uh, occurred uh, and uh, forced the family to flee. So there was the Taiping Rebellion that was key uh, to the first wave of uh, what, what was kismet, I guess, and that my great-grandmother was saved by a Protestant missionary. Kismet. Kismet. The kismet effect. <laughs> and uh, and then the, 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 two, was, was... the two others were of, uh, the Nanjing, the rape of Nanjing, the Japanese occupied China. Uh, it was the second Sino-Japanese war. And that was? That was uh, 1941 uh, to 45 or 46, somewhere around there. Um, and this was a civil war, and uh, the Japanese uh, occupied China and invaded China in 1937. Mm-hmm. And uh, if anybody knows Iris Chang, and you've read her book, The Rape of Nanjing, she describes the horror. And these are the, just some of the photos of what uh, the Japanese did to Chinese civilians. They mm-hmm. used them for bayonet practice. Uh, they used them for experiments. Uh, one of the reasons why my, my mother's uh, brother, the only boy in the family, was told to go inland in China was because they were afraid he'd be kidnapped and used as a medical experiment which the Japanese did. Uh, this is another photo of the, some of the uh, example of the atrocities of, of the, the, what the Japanese did in China. And in this backdrop, uh, my, older, my mother's older siblings had, uh, had left, but my mother uh, and her two younger siblings stayed behind. And this was the period where they had, uh, they had nothing to eat or do. Uh, the Japanese torched all the fields. Uh, they just burned everything. And my mother told me that we were told to hide everything that could be perceived as being anti-Japanese. Because Frank, my, my great-grandfather, was a... Uh, because Mary Hartwell, who was Western, gave birth to Frank. And so Frank, my, great, my, my grandfather, worked for Shell Oil. And his brother worked for the railroad. So they were Western people. They were prime targets for kidnapping or, 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 or killing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so during this, this backdrop, uh, my, my parents... Uh, my mother uh, could not be perceived as being uh, aligned with the Westerns uh, because of Frank. And so she was told to burn all of their photos, all the poems, all the music, all the sheet music, all the instruments. Uh, and at that time, they had a bathtub with a chimney to keep the water warm. And as my aunt tells me, the, the burning was so relentless that the, the chimney broke down. Mm. So very little f- photos made it out. Uh, but they just had to get. They had to burn everything that they owned. And my mother talks about starvation. That they, there was nothing but really turnips, and they learned to stir fry in turnips with water. And oil was rationed. Uh, and uh, and my mother told me the story about they would try to buy rice, but the rice oftentimes was mixed with sand. So they uh, they just couldn't couldn't eat. Ugh. But what they told my mother told me is. The way that she and her siblings s- survived and got through the hardship is they used to sing to each other. They used to recite poetry, and they used to dance. And that escape helped them mentally escape the atrocities. So tell me again about their education in China. So they went to uh, my mother. They, they all they all went to different schools because the, my mother is uh, the the uh, the. There are seven siblings, and my mother is the, the fifth one, so she's some, one of the youngest ones. But they all had different... Uh, she went to a Catholic, university, Catholic high school. Uh, the nuns, were, the nuns were, a, were good to our family because uh, they helped my, one of my aunts get out of, out of China. Uh, I talk of one of my mother's siblings witnessed a Japanese soldier kill her classmate. And when my aunt Grace came back to tell her father, they immediately told her to get out of the country. Because if the Japanese found Grace, uh, Grace would certainly be killed or slaughtered or whatever. So they talked to the nuns. And let me tell you the power of the nuns. The nuns had a connection uh, uh, in, in a college in, in, um, in the Midwest. And so they, they, the only way to get to China was by boat. There were no planes then. And so they uh, took Grace to, the, to, to the, 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 the dock. And there was a boat there. And every spot in that boat was filled except one uh, a girl that was hadn't shown up, and the girl was late, and so my aunt got in that last spot and was uh, and escaped China. She was seventeen when she came here, uh, by herself, n- knowing nobody except the nuns, 
and knowing very little English. So it was so so I talk about how this influx of uh, escaping China and coming to the United States, which really was um, uh, a country that didn't really welcome Chinese, as I talk about it in the Chinese Exclusion Act, as you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was designed to um, to kick Chinese out. Mm-hmm. And yeah. for those of you who don't know, I mean, started in California. It did California, and this is this is some of the uh, what you typically saw as propaganda about how uh, Chinese were just not welcomed in this country, and the hysteria. And this is because the Japanese, the Chinese built the railroads, and we took away jobs and all that stuff. Um, but this was relentless propaganda uh, to uh, to campaign to keep Chinese out, and the. Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 expired, and there were subsequent acts to keep the Chinese out. And the subsequent acts required Chinese to uh, show more documentation of uh, a residency in order to stay here. Uh, you had to, um, if you left, if railroad workers left to go to China to visit their families, they were not allowed to come back. So about 20,000 uh, laborers were left stranded uh, as a result of uh, one of the many acts to keep mm-hmm. Chinese out. Uh, so it was against this point of history that I began to think that it just may be possible with this uh, uh, this rise of anti-Asian hate in 2017 that maybe there'd be another Exclusion Act. And I really began to wonder that wow. we're very close about the, the – if you recall, the national conversation was build the wall, deport the children, get them out – um, mm-hmm. And that's why we saw a lot of a- more Asian hate mm-hmm. in, uh, in this country. And the, so, but each sibling had a different immigration story. Is uh, each one got out on their own? So each one out. The older ones got out because they uh, they came here for education, and they uh, they they found men who got them here. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother uh, uh, happened to uh, the story about my 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 father. Uh, that's a whole separate yeah. segue. But my father was um, uh, born in Canton, now known as Guangzhou. And he, um, China at that time, in 1911, uh, first uh, became a republic. The, the, it was, the last emperor of China was a six-year-old emperor. And so China became a republic in 1911 under Sun Yat-sen. And my father was born in 1915, and it was against this very... Uh, uh, wobbly new government in China that his mother sent him to the United States. And it was in Buffalo, New York, of all places. <laughs> and Buffalo, New York, uh, in my research, there was an influx of, of South Chinese people going to Buffalo, New York, for some reason. Don't know. There's a Chinatown there at one time. And, uh, What's the climate, right? No. I don't know. What Canton is, Canton is like really balmy, yeah. and Buffalo is like just the opposite. I yeah. don't know. But I guess when you immigrate to the country, Somebody you told go. Somebody the story. But I think it was also because of the quotas. You know, the quota, there was a, part of the, one of the many acts that was enacted uh, limited the number of Chinese who could come into this country at 105. 105 a year. Mm-hmm. 105 only in this country. Um, so the progressive acts, as you saw by the propaganda, uh, really caused a firestorm in uh, in this country and in, in Congress, which enacted all these laws to keep Chinese out. Um, and by the way, the Chinese Exclusion Act is the only act uh, that is specifically named for a race. Mm-hmm. There's no Japanese exclusion. There's no Irish exclusion. It's the Chinese Exclusion right. Act. Um, so it's just important to know that and that hasn't changed. Uh, so, uh, so, so my 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 father uh, uh, came by boat, and he was what they call a paper son. If you don't know what that is, paper son is uh, there were the laborers on the railroad claimed an offspring, and it, they, they was, there was underground papers to claim someone coming in as their son. And my father got off the boat, and he was told to listen to a, a code of somebody naming their village, and he would go to that man, and that man gave him uh, a name. And we don't know if Chin, spelled C-H-I-N-N, is really our last name, because he used C-H-I-N, but Americans pronounce it Chun or Chun, or there's different intonations, so we think it's spelled C-H-I-N. But if you look at the Chinese immigration in this country, there's also a wide swath of Chinese named C-H-I-N-N in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And my father used to say that was to throw them off the scent, because Chin, C-H-I-N-N, is not a Chinese name. 
It's an Anglo name. Mm -hmm. It's an Anglo name. So um, I don't know if my last name's Chin. It, it, it could be Hartwell. I, I have no idea what we so, <laughs> so so it's just fascinating to learn about how to assimilate. You had to change your identity. You had to change your name, and you had to just uh, change your culture. To see. I think people don't understand the many complexities of Chinese immigration and the, the cultural changes that came as they came to work on the railroads in the camps and around. When they when when in coming to California and then other parts, and for example, Chinese opera, there was Chinese opera in California, in the mid nineteenth century. As people came with a, for the to do the railroad, they brought the culture with them, and the railroads were built by the the barons, right? Crocker, Stanford, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, they Crocker theorized that if the Chinese could build the Great Wall, they could build a railroad. And they needed people to go through the, the granite to go through to California and to blast through it, which the Chinese invented dynamite, but if you recall. Yeah. So, um, and there were, for every Chinese that was blown up uh, trying to blast through the Sierras, uh, there were more Chinese to come. So we were, we were, ex we were just disposable to the, uh, the, le the railroad barons. And uh, so when you think about... Uh, we, so when you think about this country, that the Amtrak, you know, I mean, all these tra these tracks were built by by the Chinese by hand, you know, by hand by laborers, and and it was just um, uh, exploitation of the Chinese in this in in this country, a shameful massive, exploitation, massive exploitation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, but there, I talk about that. There was there was the Taiping Rebellion, and there was the Nan the rape of Nanjing. There was a there was a third wave. Of violence that caused my family to leave China, and that was the uh, the civil war uh, between the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek and the communists with Mao Zedong. So that was the chi another Chinese civil war. I think the Americans were maybe more aware of those two. of those times, yeah. and so Mao Zedong, of course, won that, and that became the start of the Communist Party in China. And my father, when he had settled here, eventually joined the Marines, and he was in the intelligence. And that is how he got to know that Mao was going to seal the borders. And he got my mother and uh, my sister, who was born in China, and her mother out of China on the last military ship, the SS Adder. Uh, so because he was in the military? In, in, the, intelli in the intelligence. Him. Yeah, he was in the Marines. That was pretty, pretty good thinking yeah. there. Uh -huh. So the family's always um, had a way of Dealing with the situation. Yeah, and don't forget, these were before the days of phones, you know, so there was no way to communicate once you got... It's sort of like saying, um, I'll meet you in um, Russia, you know, and you, th and you just, as a 17-year-old, a 20-year-old girl, you go and you try to find your way and connect, and, and they had uh, connections uh, uh, through two major uh, important uh, in, um, organizations. Mm -hmm. One is the China Institute, which was founded in 1926. Does that still exist? It still exists. It was founded uh, to foster bicultural relationships between China and the United States through uh, exchanges with professors and with students as a way to uh, appreciate uh, 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 Chinese art in both sides of the continent. Uh, but that was a, a, a resource to go to in this country. You went to the China Institute to find out who you could know to put you in touch with somebody as a way. So they helped a lot of my, my family find who to connect with. And the other is the Asia Society. So the Asia Society was created in 1956 by John D. Rockefeller. Uh, and both those organizations are still very much at play. And they still very much are committed to supporting uh, a, a, a true exchange of understanding between China and the United States. So those two agencies were sort of like our Underground Railroad, where my, my mother's siblings learned to go and find somebody there who would connect you to find somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who could find your aunt. Mm -hmm. So you, you'd meet in such and such city on such and such day, but you weren't quite sure where. Right, right. You couldn't text them. <laughs> right, and you had to be careful because Chinese weren't allowed in, so mm -hmm. you had to be very you had to be very discreet about finding your connections. You're aware of Angel Island and and immigration, uh, the immigration stories here of the uh, people being brought and uh, held on Angel Island. 
some for months and months and months and months before being allowed into um, into the Bay, into San Francisco. It's quite a, another uh, immigration story. One of the the history of of in the history of Asian immigration in the United States. Um, it's a really, really complex, huge story, uh, as it well it should be for such a huge population and a significant part of and, and what's all, making us great. And all of my mother's siblings made it out through different times. They found each other. The only, uh, the only person who didn't make it out was my grandfather, my grandfather Frank. Because my grandfather Frank... Um, he believed, huh? He, well, he had a concubine. He cheated on his wife. And he had a concubine. And the concubine was my mother's classmate in high school. So there was all this turmoil happening here. Uh, but Frank made the decision to stay behind uh, with his concubine, with whom he had a son. And his, his last words to his wife was, I'll see you in heaven. And years later, um, the concubine died. And Frank had a change of heart. He wanted to come to this country. And there's, there was no way you could... He was, he was in communist China. The, the borders were sealed. And there were intermediaries that tried to find a way to get Frank to go to Hong Kong to meet someone there who would get under an assumed name, then get him on a, a ship to come to the United States. And Frank makes his way from Beijing to Hong Kong, which is an arduous trip, he had, to go, he had to go incognito because he was well-known. Remember, he worked for Shell Oil. He was an executive, and he was famous. And if the communists heard that he was ever going to make their, their way towards some port, he would he'd be detected. So he went by an assumed name. Hmm. The person the intermediary to, who met him didn't know he was going through an assumed name and got to the port, was looking for assumed name. Frank had a different name, and Frank missed the connection hmm. and missed his opportunity to come to the United States. So, uh, so he died in China. So he was the only one who didn't did come out. So that was that was the journey out. My mother said that was you know he, he, karma. <laughs> she wasn't very oh. happy with him. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she. Was, <laughs> my mother and her siblings are really you know very upset with okay. their father when he did that. But uh, but they felt that was that was karma. That was divine. Uh, a divine sign you shouldn't cheat on your wife and so my the, the the my mother's siblings really never forgave their father for what he did so the whole family was christian as a result you know some were some were quaker so each of the siblings when they came here found a different church to go to they found a different uh, denom- uh, denomination <laughs> my mother uh, was catholic uh-huh. so. mm-hmm. okay that's uh, that in itself is a whole a whole segment. That's a whole segment. There's a whole segment in the book that, I, that didn't make it in the book about uh, how my mother's piousness and, and how she felt about the Catholic Church. And uh, it ties into the, the restaurant that we owned because the restaurant was so successful and very popular that uh, the, 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 the cardinals the, in, in, from China came to Mahjong because they were from her hometown. And so over the course of 10 years, our family restaurant was frequented by the only three uh, Chinese cardinals. It was, uh, so this restaurant that my parents began uh, was, is actually the, the core piece of the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was always meant to be the book. And then this whole thing about anti-immigration and you know, Kung Flu and all that stuff, that caused me to add the part about the immigrants in the front part. Well, the, and the, the exclusion, just going back to this for a sec. <clears throat> The Exclusion Act was not the only uh, anti-Chinese act. There were a couple of others that people have, have probably not heard of at all. Just just mention what those were. The uh, well, there was the Scott, Scott Act. Uh, there was the Geary Act. Uh, of course, there was the um, uh, the Immigration Act of 1924. Been ma- the United States has had many immigration acts. To be clear, mm-hmm. uh, but the one that imp- was pertaining to the Chinese was specific, was progressive, to keep them out, to make it harder for them to come back in, harder for them to stay. Um, like I mentioned, when they if the laborers left to go to China to visit their, their their family in China, it was hard to come back in. They the the government enacted acts of law to keep them out if they would come back in. So it was a it was a, uh, it was this is part of this country's. Um, DNA, I suppose. Yeah. It, it, I, I've, I think that we are, I hate to say it, at large, very anti-immigrant 
focused in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's just too bad because I talk about how my family of immigrants and your family of immigrants have um, done so much for this country. And it was always been my hope that people who read the book, my book, would think about their own lineage and what their grandparents did here in this country. Yes, and that's part of the, the, <clears throat> the um, what do I want to say, the paradox of the United States. Is it is, yeah. On the one hand and on the other hand. So um, we'll, we'll get now to the, this is, on the one hand, so many people arrived uh, from all these different circumstances, whether it was on a boat from China, mm-hmm. whether it was on a slave ship, whether it was in an airplane, whether it was from the south, the north, the west, or the east. And people managed to find a way to make a better life, a better life for themselves and the community. And no exception here. <laughs> and keep on going. Yep. Yeah. The, the, the one... Um I must say the one tragedy of, of assimilating for me has been because my parents wanted to fit in and not be uh, uh, ostracized, which they kind of were. Don't forget, when they, came, when they came to the United States, it was 1949, and they moved to Long Island, which was very homogenized in those days in the, in the, 50, in the 50s and 60s. Um, and in the late 60s, the, the Vietnam War was being televised on TV. So when people saw the brutality of the Vietnam War, um, my family growing up, we were, we, people thought we were Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And people, were, we, they vilified us because they saw us killing American soldiers on TV. So you just, it was that, that, um, that hard to fit in. And so my, my mother and father did not want my siblings and me to speak any Chinese. They did not want to mm. us to be, you know, thought of as, as, as a target. So I don't speak Chinese, and I think that is, uh, and, and many uh, first, second generation uh, people also don't speak. Yo Yo Ma does not speak Japanese, by the way. Um, and I think that's just a shame to have to hide your cultural identity. And I think it's many ways um, covert linguistic cleansing. Mm-hmm. Um, and had we been allowed to be ourselves, I think we uh, could have. Um, Fostered and kept the Chinese and not so family. covert, not so covert. Yeah. yeah, you know, don't don't speak that here. You know, yeah. Um, whether it's a Native American American tongue, or whether it's a European right tongue, or or Chinese, as well. Um, so so, but you did land here, and uh, now it's time to turn to uh, after you were evacuated from China, the situation in the United States and New York that influenced your parents and your grandparents' adaptation to living here in the United States and then assimilating on Long Island. <laughs> and everybody here knows that, you know. <laughs> you know, um, my... It's, it, it maybe describe Long Island yeah, is... Long Island is, is, is this part of New York. Um, it looks like that. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. And... Uh, New York City is to your left, and the area that I grew up in was Nassau County, which is the area in green. Uh, and if you go in the far, in your far right, that would be what you might know as Montauk Point. Uh, uh-huh. The Hamptons is probably the most famous part of, of, of Long Island. But my, my mother and father came here through, um, uh, through San Francisco, and they lived in San Francisco for a while. Uh, my father had, um, this is something that I think nobody knows about a corporation named Goodyear Tire. Uh, Goodyear Tire in 1944 offered uh, factory education for Chinese uh, boys in the United States because they were uh, trying to, this is part of the, 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 the bike cordial relationship mm-hmm. that China okay. and the United States once had through Goodyear Tire. And Goodyear um, had four, four chi- spots for four Chinese boys, my father was one of them, to learn about factory cost basis, cost analysis, all of the things that uh, factory work. Uh, accounting, my father would study accounting. And this was a wonderful gift that Goodyear did for, uh, for immigrant uh, uh, men. And because of that business background, my father was able to eventually 
start his own, own business. And he uh, was when he came to San Francisco, he ran a Goodyear tire factory someplace in this in the city, mm-hmm. and then they migrated to New York, um, and uh, that was where uh, all the there was a Chinatown there. Was there wasn't really Chinatown here yet, mm-hmm. and he always wanted to work for himself. And uh, through circumstances, our family gravitational pull ended up in um, in the tri-state area. But uh, that uh, Long Island was all potato farms back in those days. And Very flat. Long Island was Non-dis- known for its Long Island potatoes. And in fact, when we lived uh, at our first home in Syosset, New York, if you dug deep enough, you could still smell potatoes in the soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Long Island was also known for um, the first suburb that was built in the United States. It was called Levittown. And it was started by a man named Bill Levitt. And that's Levittown. It looked like that. And Bill Levitt uh, created a suburb that is replicated everywhere today. The suburbs are modeled after what Bill Levitt created. But Bill Levitt also had a covenant that anybody who bought a home in Levittown, uh, they, they would not sell the home to what he called than Negroes, uh, because uh, he felt that if they sold a home to Negroes, uh, to, to people of color, that uh, the, the value of the property would, uh, mm-hmm. would decrease. So it was quite racist uh, in, in Long Island when we were there. Uh, and there's a, you can research many stories about a man named Robert Moses who mm-hmm. built the uh, State Park. And, uh, and so the, how he designed the bridges, which are, were low, were... In, in theory, to, to keep the, the 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 buses coming in from New York and bring the Puerto Ricans in, so there's a whole history of Long Island that is quite quite sad. But uh, we grew up about eight miles from Levittown, in a place called Syosset, and that is where my father uh, bought an old potato barn. Um, and what he was told when he was settling into very white, homogenized uh, Long Island was, if you want to be accepted, uh, join the Kiwanis Club. Yes, and he joined the Kiwanis Club in Huntington, and he networked. And he was told just network and just tell your dream, tell your story. And there was a banker who ran the Long Island National Bank, and the banker took a liking to my dad. And my father was a uh, he was a visionary, and he said, "I want to I want to own a restaurant." And uh, there's a potato barn that's just sitting there, and it's right on the the turnpike. And uh, the banker gave him the sixty thousand dollars to buy the barn. Uh, with just a handshake, which you don't do these mm-hmm. days. Wow. And so the the restaurant was called Mahjong Restaurant, uh, named after the game, but uh, but my, my father also loved to gamble, so there's a lot of that in the book, too. Uh, ah. And uh, that's the how letter. Did, how did people respond, do you think, to that is the name of the restaurant? They loved it, because pe- you know, people played Mahjong, the, the game, so the name Mahjong was very, was very recognizable. And he didn't want to name it Chin's restaurant. He just named it something. Yeah, something that was creative. And so um, that is my mother at the counter of Mahjong, and it was uh, it was the um, very simple. Uh, he, my father went to Chinatown in New York in Manhattan. He would drive in to pick up chefs in Chinatown and drive them to Long Island to cook at Mahjong because they made authentic food. And then at the end of the shift, he'd drive them back to Chinatown, which is an hour each way, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, uh, because you couldn't find any Chinese chefs on Long Island. There weren't, just simply weren't any. So he just went in a station wagon and picked up five chefs and brought them back. And then eventually uh, it became too much, so he built a dormitory uh, mm-hmm. uh, underneath the restaurant, which was illegal. Mm-hmm. He, had, he didn't believe in coding. He just, he just mm-hmm. built it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we were told never to go down there. I was told, don't go down there. Uh, it's, it's, girls aren't allowed down there. And they, I, know, I snuck down there. They had a gambling den. They had smoking in there. And the, it was like a little Chinatown. They had the laundry with the, with the undershirts hanging on, the, on, the, on, on string. Yeah. And, and they had pictures of naked girls down there. So that was their little Chinatown. And so he built this for them to keep, keep help because that way they, he wouldn't lose them by any chef saying, I, I, I don't want to make the commute anymore. But Fair. this is his business spirit about taking care of his employees. And it's one of the first examples of um, how to care for your staff yes. that I've taken with me. Uh, and I, I try to emulate at places that I work now, at uh, TheaterWorks, mm-hmm. um, and other places. Mm-hmm. And then that's a common uh, tactic 
in, in Chinese industry and business to have places for the people who work there to live there also. Yeah. And our home was only about half a mile from, from the restaurant, so it was very convenient to, to be there. And this is one of the pictures of my father. It, it typical, actually, he was always helping young kids. And that young girl was one of the people who contacted me on Facebook to say, your father taught me how to use chopsticks. Yeah. Um, he probably taught a lot of people how to use chopsticks. Yep. It was a very simple restaurant. That's the, that used to be the potato barn. That was the barn that he made into a, into a restaurant. Um, and who were the customers? The customers were people from the Kiwanis Club. And, uh, and this restaurant was situated across from the, loft, from the Syosset Hospital. And uh, does anybody remember Grauman's Electronics in those days? Yes. Grauman's was located just down the street from Jericho Turnpike. Grauman's um, was responsible for, uh, for the, the lunar module. So all of the workers from Grauman, China, Grauman would come to the restaurant. And by the way, work ended about 4 o'clock for those factory workers. So they would all come in at 4 o'clock and come to the bar. Uh, and that was, when, um, that was the, when I helped to wait on them at the bar by putting the toothpicks and cherries and putting them in their little martini glasses. Um, but that became so popular, and it, it eventually needed uh, renovation. That's a typical scene of what a of what a dinner looked like at, at the restaurant. It was always filled with people and noise. Um, and I look at this and I think, you know, we don't eat like this anymore. We don't have, we don't, we don't commune like this anymore. Um, and then eventually, uh, the restaurant got so um, so popular that we had to build an extension. So during the uh, late fifties and sixties, there was a huge wave of interest in. Polynesia. Uh, South Pacific, the book came out. Missions Hawaii came out. Uh, there was a huge uh, interest. Flower Drum Song was playing on Broadway, uh, directed by Gene Kelly, by the way. Uh, Hawaii, Hawaii, Hawaii came, came out. Hawaii became a state. And then uh, in Disneyland, they were going to build a... The Tiki Room was being built there. And in Hawaii, the Alamoana Shopping Center, which was the biggest outdoor shopping center in the world at that time, was um, about ready to add a whole Polynesian entertainment. So all this interest in Hawaii as our 50th state uh, was just reverberating around the country. And so my, my, my parents took us to Hawaii to get a, a, get a sense of what this phenomenon was all about. And we got the Polynesian bug. We just fell in love with that culture. And Dad had the idea that he would add a Polynesian nightclub. To, uh, so he, and, and so this uh, is an artist rendering, but... I'd like you to note the facade is all made of stone. And that stone was, was put together hand by hand by laborers uh, who took a whole bunch of rock and cut them, measured them, and put them in piece by piece into that facade. It, it is, uh, it is, um, it, there's no other building in the world like it. Is like to say, and it had a dramatic archway, and it just became uh, the foundation for a new Polynesian show. And I'm, that's me in the middle with my fake hair, uh, <laughs> and I was uh, 12 years old, being thrust into this land of Polynesia, uh, and learning all these uh, these dances. And uh, so my upbringing as a as a young girl was about how to how to. I, I grew away from selling cigarettes and putting toothpicks into cherries to, into, into becoming a Polynesian dancer. Um, and so the nightclub was, uh, was extremely popular. This was the days when um, you had to wear, men had to wear a coat to go into a dining room. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have a coat, we would give you a coat from the coat check room. You don't see coat check rooms anymore in, in restaurants, and you don't see phone booths anymore in restaurants. And I talk about in this gilded age of restaurants, what it was, what the architecture was like in a restaurant. If you go into a restaurant, any restaurant now, it does not look like what it looked like back then when you could actually have a conversation uh, and talk to one another without uh, screaming. Uh, and then if you wanted to take a phone call, you didn't talk at the table. You went into the phone booth and did your call there, but you actually had a conversation around a meal. Um, of course, every Polynesian show has a fire dancer, as you know, and this is a real Samoan chief. He, uh, he, he's from Samoa. He, his name is Chief Toofi. And that is uh, what he used to do and scare the bejesus. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I grew up 
doing promotions for the for the restaurants. All I knew was how to you know sell and hawk, and that is me. Uh, that is an old old me. <laughs> Um, and then we had, you know, it was, it was kitsch. It was all, uh, this is all tying into the fervor of what it was like to be um, in the Polynesian environment. And so remember, this is in New York. As far as, you couldn't get to Hawaii easily in those days. There weren't flights from United that went several times a day. It was hard to get there. So we built a, Polyn- a land of Polynesia on Long Island. Um, there was also a Chinese New Year and all those celebrations. And, and so this, what, was, what I found fascinating about this uh, history of, of the Chinese, of our restaurant, mm-hmm. is that there were people that would come with their families uh, for dinner every Sunday. Uh, people just came as families to the restaurant where they ate, where they would mm-hmm. do takeout every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so this ritual of families going to someplace together is what I was so uh, intrigued to know about because we don't do that now. You know, there was no DoorDash in those days. Uh, were you were you putting forth a Chinese menu and a Polynesian? It was continental. It was continental, but same restaurant. But Chinese food in those days was sort of like La Choy and Chongqing. You know, there really wasn't. But my father, because he went and got those Chinese chefs, they brought their recipes from China, and there are no written recipes because the the China, they they just make it up. And um, and there's and. It, the, the restaurant had uh, lobster and steak, and it had stuff for American palates. But they had the introduction of real Cantonese food, which was, you know... Uh, 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 here's, the, here's the menu. The, the menu. For, yeah. So it was really authentic for those days. And there was no other cuisine except Cantonese. Um, Szechuan hadn't been really around. There wasn't sushi in those days. It was just Cantonese food mm-hmm. uh, that was beyond the canned food that you could get at home. Le Choy and uh, those were made for uh, the, the, the railroad workers. Yeah. It, longevity noodles, barbecued roast pig. Everybody go out to dinner afterwards. Let's see. Treasured pork rolls, jaded capon. And the, the other thing that's interesting about the, the restaurant menu is that the reason why people say, I can't find sparrows like that anymore, or I can't find a dish that tastes like that, because we don't harvest food like that anymore. You know, we source food differently. The soil is different. The, the environment's different. Uh, grains are different. Uh, everything is different. So a pig does not taste the same now as it did back then. Mm-hmm. And we had a mantra, which is leave all the fat on. The more fat, the better. And while you're at it, Add some salt to it. Yeah. So it just, and so it, we just, my father, who, who was a chemist, by the way, he just loved to experiment in the kitchen. And he would come up with these dishes that were homegrown, and they'd be the house special. And you never knew what was in it, because it was never quite the same. It was, every day was a different house special. But that's what brought people back. Yes, it was, it was a family routine. Yeah. And, um, well, no wonder you went into theater. I'm looking, like there's a program that was published. These things, this this wasn't just go to the restaurant. This was, uh, there was, this is a program from um, So Chinese New Year, so the restaurant was open every day, every day except for two days, Chinese New Year, one day to get ready and one day to celebrate. And um, in a true act of philanthropy, my parents would close the restaurant down. They would sell tickets. It was, there was a line to get into this place because uh, there was a show. There was a banquet. There was just nonstop um, entertainment. But the proceeds went to the Chinese Cultural Center of Long Island. And my f- mother and father always remembered how they had to burn all their artifacts mm-hmm. and all of their, 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 their precious possessions. And on Long Island, there was a Chinese Cultural Center whose mission was to save Chinese culture. And so every year, all the proceeds went to that with the Chinese Cultural Center. And, uh, and so we grew up in this era of philanthropy, which is how I yeah. learned how to give back and how to form a career in the arts. And my mother and her siblings were very modest about their contributions. And my mother would just, you know, she'll probably send a lightning bolt when I tell you this, but she um, and my father would both send food to the Syosset Hospital for uh, the nurses who worked the graveyard shift, the doctors, so they would have something to eat. And when she heard that any of uh, the customers' children were going to have a, uh, an operation or surgery, she would bring toys from the gift shop and leave them at the desk for the child 
to have when they came out of surgery, those gentle acts of kindness is how they operated. And they just wanted to give back, and they wanted to not just to buy favors, but they really believed in feeding and taking care of people that couldn't take care of themselves because they remembered what it was like to be hungry, to be hungry, and to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. And so um, we've never forgotten that, that that gratitude of being in this country that did not really accept them at first. Eventually, uh, my parents became very, uh, very solid citizens uh, by virtue of their philanthropic uh, nature. Do you think, you know, I mean, you talk about this, and I noticed there was this printed program lasting from 7.30 fireworks all the way to a raffle at the end, and there there was ceremonies and speeches and entertainment and dance music. I mean, it's logical. It was nonstop. And, you know, my father used to say, someday you should own this restaurant, and I thought, forget it, I don't want to own a restaurant, because (laughs) you never sleep, right? You never sleep, and we never saw each other. You know, and to be clear, the restaurant business is not glamorous at all, for those of you who ever worked in a restaurant. Um, We children lived on opposite sides of the clock than our parents, so we never saw each other. When it came time to us to go to school, our parents were sleeping, uh, we took ourselves to school, and then when our parents, the only time we saw our parents was when we worked at the restaurant. And so uh, hours for us were, you know, we, we just worked till the restaurant was open till two in the morning. So we just worked nonstop. And all I, all my siblings and I really know is how to work hard. Yeah. Um, you know, we weren't, uh, we didn't ask for a day. We, we don't dare ask for a day off. You just worked and you did whatever was needed to. to just go out and do it. Go out and do it. And do it with joy. Don't complain about it. And to learn to find something to like about it, basically. So these are, these would be, I would think, these are some of the important lessons you've learned that you're you, you're using in an arts management career, and and that this could sway one towards uh, being involved in um, in the arts and giving and sharing and the philanthropic approach. So, and the other thing I wonder uh, is what is it about the business model that my parents had? They had customers that stay with them for many, many years. What do you think it was? The business model. Well, it's the business model I've tried to emulate as a, as a CEO and an executive directors in the room. You know uh, what I'm talking about, that um, it's, it's about building a sense of community, about being a sense of belonging. Uh, if a new customer came to the restaurant and my father heard about it, have a drink on me. Uh, and they would always call you by your name. We were cheers before cheers was even around. So, and so that new customer would come back. So as I run theater companies and opera companies, I think what is it about the experience that would keep our audiences coming back? And I think the experience happens from before the time they come in the door. It's how you answer the phone. It's how you process the reservation. And my, this is why my, my mother used to send my brother and me as young kids to go in the parking lot and open the doors for the customers and then say, hi, <laughs> we were like five or six, hi, come on in. I mean, what other restaurant did that? And so you, you put them in a good mood. We opened the door for them. And, mm-hmm. and then at the end, we say goodbye. And so this whole, so I sort of emulated this at Cal Shakes, where we used to work, and um, from soup to nuts. So that, and then after a while, it becomes just part of what you love to do. And, and I've sharing. learned to build yeah. staff who like to do that. You'd be surprised how many staff don't like to do that. But, yeah, uh, well, that's right. The part of the hard work, the sharing, yeah, um, and and staying with it, the long hours. Gee, sounds like an arts job to me. <laughs> for those, for all of us who are in, involved in the arts. Well, we have about uh, five more minutes. Um, if anyone had a question they wanted to write down and bring up to me, now's the time to do it. And um, I wanted to uh, to ask Debbie. Uh, if if there was any at any recall any moments during your arts management career that took you back to um, oh my god this was like mahjong all over again but in a positive way I I do this I I think about this all the time I I look and I try to replicate everything that I learned in the restaurant in my in every job that I have whether whether it's a campaign or how I greet people or my networks and you know sometimes the customers don't like what you do and you have to learn how to 
apologize and how to, you know, extend and, ha- you know, that these are not every customer that came to the restaurant liked their experience. Um, some complained about a lot of things. Uh, to be sure, many customers told us that we were not wanted there. And so we had to learn how to, how to go, go beyond that to try to welcome them back. Uh, and if it didn't work, it didn't work. But, you know, uh, we, we also, I also learned about resiliency, but I also learned about how to truly uh, look at everybody individually because in every customer is different. They want, my, if somebody didn't want salt, fine, I have salt. Um, my, it's whatever you want, whatever will make you comfortable. But there was a point. My father did not tolerate bullies. Um, if anybody called us a derogatory name, they were asked to leave. Uh, and many, many people did. So uh, we stood on principle as well. Mm-hmm. And so because we stood on principle, people knew that they were safe. Uh, Jews came to our, our, our restaurant a lot, and some people accused us of, mm-hmm. of um, harboring uh, uh, Jewish customers. Um, and so we just got at it from both sides. Very important lessons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how difficult, maybe, maybe you may not know this, but how difficult is it now if, if uh, people, families want to, to immigrate Seems to me has a lot to do with their education and. It finances. depends on where you're from. Yeah, depends where you're from you and think, who you know, right? I think it depends on what color you are. Yep. To be honest, I think there's some privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at these news reports about if you happen to be brown mm-hmm. or black, uh, it it take we got more hurdles to mm-hmm. get through. I mean, you talked about people coming on boats, and but many immigrants are coming in stuffed into trucks. Mm-hmm. And trains, right, mm-hmm. to come here, mm-hmm. uh, because it's inhospitable to, to immigrants these mm-hmm. days. One hopes that we will move towards a new place of understanding in this country about that everybody's here that has value, no matter what you look like. That together, it truly is the melting pot. But we have to make some serious political policy changes, and those policy changes have yet to be uh, adopted, you know, and, and brought forward. Well, and I think we see um, whatever the, whoever the composition of the Congress is or whatever, um, but my, my parents also, when they became citizens, the first thing they did was they uh, registered to vote. And my mother never missed an election. She, uh, she was very clear on who she wanted to vote for, and she voted in every election, local and uh, national. Mm-hmm. And so I have taken that um, that mantle because I do believe that um, it's it's a it's it's a right that we shouldn't squander, and mm-hmm. and we can make a difference um, by who who we elect. But I've always been interested in, in my organizations and arts organizations how to bring people towards a place of civic literacy and understanding and activism. Yes. my parents and my family were activists to survive, you had to be an activist. That's. That's an essential part, being the advocate, being the activist. As <clears throat> so the, some recent elections in Georgia have shown up, you know, the, all, the, all the hardships that were put in the way, and the, the people just showed up and voted. So you got to show up and vote. That's our public affairs note for the day. There you go. <laughs> Glad I could slip it in. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it, it's about closing time, so I, I want to... Uh, that went by faster it than did you back. thought, yeah, didn't yeah. it? <laughs> so I want to thank Debbie Chin so much for for joining me in this conversation about your book, Dancing in Their Light, a daughter's unfinished memoir. We'll wait for chapter two. It's uh, by Strange Fate, Strange Fate Publications, uh, published this past year. And... Um, we encourage you, the copies will be available outside and through the Commonwealth Club. And we encourage you to uh, see the impact of that upbringing through uh, Debbie's management practices at Theater Works, where she is now, and t- take advantage, go to performances, take advantage of the rich variety of theater and other arts performances that we have available in the, the Bay Area and you again, you can uh, tell your friends they can listen to this program in a few days on the website in our recordings podcast section. I think it's a YouTube channel. And most, Debbie, 
I'm so pleased we did this. Well, thank you to everybody for being here yes. and for um, for listening, and thank you everybody who's uh, tuning in. Um, but this is just a great way to bring us all together, and I'm just so so honored to have you all here. Thank you. Yes. She's got her she's got her gavel. Yep. Yes. And Debbie. Yes. Thank you for bringing the arts live back to the Commonwealth <laughs> Club. <laughs> and now. Uh, this meeting of celebrating the 120th year of the existence of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nation's oldest public affairs forum, is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.